You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. The Intelligence and Security Committee of Parliament has rendered its report on the Russian cyber threat. Trend Micro reports on the workings of the cyber criminal underground economy. The Twitter hack still looks like a well-executed but half-baked criminal scam. Ben Yellen on U.S. Customs and Border Protection collecting license plate data. Our guest is Kevin O'Brien from Greathorn on the role of business policies in security to keep users safe during high-risk events. And it turns out that Russia has no hackers whatsoever. Moscow's finance minister says so, so you can take that to the bank. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, July 21st, 2020. The UK's Intelligence and Security Committee of Parliament rendered its long-anticipated report on Russian espionage and cyber operations at Westminster this morning. The redacted report concludes that Russia's aims are primarily negative, paranoid, also fundamentally nihilistic, seeking to disrupt and damage rivals. Moscow's subsidiary positive substantive goals include sustaining its prestige as a great power and preserving its rulers' privileged positions. The committee outlines extensive Russian disinformation operations against the UK. These have pursued goals observed elsewhere, including the opportunistic exploitation of existing social fissures to erode trust in civil society and the institutions that serve it. Russia is assessed, unsurprisingly, as a highly capable cyber actor with a proven capability to carry out operations which can deliver a range of impacts across any sector. A striking feature of Russia's cyber capability is the close and symbiotic relationship its intelligence and security services enjoy with Russian organized crime. This relationship, which includes corrupt business operations, is seen as so close as to render the gangs, the contractors, and the state operators effectively indistinguishable. But the security and intelligence services are the ones calling the shots. The criminals are compromised, suborned, and controlled. They understand that they operate at the sufferance of the organs. The committee's recommendations include closer cooperation with allies and new authorities for the intelligence community. In many respects, the report covers similar ground to that surveyed by the U.S. Cyberspace Solarium Commission. The report's title is the single word, Russia. 
but the committee's discussion of Russian activities makes frequent reference to the cyber threats posed by China, Iran, and North Korea as well. It expresses a recognition of the difficulty of properly and effectively balancing defensive resources across the four familiar adversaries. The report also makes note of the United Kingdom's development of an effective offensive capability suitable for deterrence and, when necessary, retaliation. The committee appreciates that Russia is a hard target for intelligence collection. It also notes that both collection and active cyber-offensive measures against Russia carry a distinct risk. Quote, In the case of Russia, the potential for escalation is particularly potent. The Russian regime is paranoid about Western intelligence activities and is not able to treat objectively international condemnation of its actions. It views any such moves as Western efforts to encourage internal protest and regime change. The risk is compounded by limitations on UK engagement with the Russian government at official and political levels, making deciphering Russian leadership intent even more difficult. End quote. And Moscow's centralized decision-making, seen as distinctively shaped by President Putin's personality and style of government, has given Russia a surprising agility in cyber-conflict. Her Majesty's government is also soliciting comment on a proposal to improve the security of the Internet of Things, particularly consumer smart devices. The highlights of the proposed new measures are, as summarized by Lot Australia, first... Temporarily ban the supply or sale of the product while tests are undertaken. Second, permanently ban insecure products if a breach of the regulations is identified. Third, serve a recall notice compelling manufacturers or retailers to take steps to organize the return of the insecure product from consumers. And finally, apply to the court for an order for the confiscation or destruction of a dangerous product issue a penalty notice imposing a fine directly on a business. Comments are due by September 6th. Kevin O'Brien is CEO and co-founder of email security company Greathorn. He joins us with insights on the role of business policies in security to keep users safe during high-risk events. In many ways, what we've seen over the course of the last, call it three months, as of the time we're recording this, are examples of the kinds of situations that give rise to social engineering attacks and then by extension, you know, phishing attacks and security attacks over over email as a channel. And that theme is very much, as you said, a broader one than, than just this current moment. What sort of uh, events rise to be called high-risk events? What sort of things are we talking about here? What you're looking for whenever you're talking about social engineering and high-risk events is something that creates a, a sense of urgency on the victim's behalf. So global events that everybody is nervous about and, and the pandemic that we're currently experiencing certainly qualifies would be a, a good example case of that. But you can also see it where an organization might have people who are nervous about uh, their taxes. So every year, you get a spate of of phishing attacks that are focused around tax season, your W-2 is attached. Why? Because money's involved. And that's something that creates a sense of urgency. Oh, my taxes are due or I owe tax. Uh, Oh, oh, my taxes are I'm going to get paid money from the government because I overpaid. People are inherently like, I want to go look at that right now. 
So money, health, family, job status, uh, those are all uh, the sorts of things that create high-risk moments. And social engineers and attackers who get this understand how to condition people to certain responses. And it's trivial to send you an email that says, oh, I've got your COVID-19 update from the boss, but you know, more advanced and sophisticated attackers will do this over the course of days or weeks or months, and, and you don't even realize you're being played. It's, it's just another con, and it can be a short con or a long con. Email is just a, a convenient delivery mechanism because every professional has an email address. So what's the solution for an organization here? Are, are there technical solutions? Does it come down to training? How, how do we dial in a response here? There are so many vendors out there who claim that they have some thing that they'll sell you and it's going to solve the problem. And it's it's really just honestly insane to think that that's the case. The problem is there's no one thing that you do. There's almost this assumption that this is a problem that can't be solved because it's difficult to solve. And you know, I think that for the, the listeners that is really the thing that we need to challenge, the assumption that this is an intractable problem because it is not. And I think that overcoming that fatigue is the story behind the story. Why are things like COVID-19 emails out there? Because they work, but we can still address that. We can do better, but we do better by thinking about this strategically and, and laying out a defense in depth strategy around security posture rather than here's a thing you can buy and, and I think that's the underlying point that really uh, I would underscore for, for your listeners. That's Kevin O'Brien from Great Horn. Researchers at security firm Trend Micro today issued a report on the underworld's cybercriminal economy. The principal offerings seen in Fora catering to criminal customers are dedicated and virtual hosting providers, service protection and anonymization providers, additional infrastructure provision, such as in-browser botnet services, IoT hosting, and telecommunications, legitimate services used for malicious purposes, such as cloud services, dynamic DNS hosting, and SSL certificate provisioning, and so on. There's some overlap between criminal-to-criminal fora and those dedicated to gaming, online marketing, and search engine optimization. So how do buyers and sellers find one another? Through familiar forms of online marketing. Trend Micro says, quote, Like any business that sells goods and services to potential buyers, criminal sellers also advertise. Sellers use different platforms to promote their products and services, chat channels, hacking forums, and social media posts. End quote. So as always, it pays to advertise. And finally, to return to the UK's new report on Russian cyber operations. For its part, TASS is authorized to disclose that all that stuff in the Intelligence and Security Committee of Parliament's report on Russia is a bunch of hooey, that there are no Russian hackers. Quote, There are no hackers working for the Russian government, so our government does not consider any actions by hackers, nor does it coordinate them. End quote. That's from Russia's finance minister, Anton Silowanov. He added that Russia was developing its own COVID-19 vaccine and therefore had no need to steal anyone else's, which besides it also did not do. And, by the way, the inflated cyber hysteria isn't going to slow down Russia's vibrant and growing economy. 
In a nice touch, TASS sources its story to an interview Mr. Silowanoff gave to CNBC. All politics may be local, but all news seems to be global. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He is from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Ben, great to have you back. Good to be with you again, Dave. Uh, Article came by, this is from the folks over at TechCrunch, written by Zach Whitaker, and it's titled, CBP says it's unrealistic for Americans to avoid its license plate surveillance. Uh, These are uh, our friends over at the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency. Uh, Bring us up to date here, Ben, what's going on? Well, I hope you really have friends over there because uh, <laughs> otherwise, uh, you know, we're both going to be subject to a lot of data collection. Uh, yeah. So this is about license plates readers. Um, CBP purchases uh, data from commercial license plate readers uh, all across the country. They aggregate that data from uh, s- some commercial companies, some private companies, but also some public sources. So law enforcement security cameras. And this is uh, to augment its border enforcement efforts. Now, hmm. you'd think this would be limited to the area around the border, maybe you know, 100 miles from our southern and northern border. Uh, right. But from what this disclosure is saying is it actually exists all over the country. Um, hmm. That in order to fulfill their obligations, this agency, CBP, is collecting license plate data even if individuals are not close to the border at all. Uh, And the message they're sending users here is there's really no way to protect your privacy. Your license plate, (laughs) if you decide to drive on the road, is going to be collected and put in this database. And there's really not much you can do about it. Um, Hmm. We now have the technology so that cameras can capture thousands of license plates uh, every minute. 
It's a great way to track uh, the location of vehicles and persons inside those vehicles. And, you know, this is sort of a warning shot on the part of Customs and Border Protection saying, don't come to us in court saying you had an expectation of privacy because you do not. Uh, We're collecting a lot of information. We're scanning it. There's not much you can do about it unless you decide to never go on the roads at all. So not great from the perspective of the average person who's just going to get their groceries and doesn't want you know, to be uh, caught by a license plate reader. Hmm. Yeah, I, I have to say, uh, as someone who uh, initially had raised eyebrows over the uh, CBP's 100-mile border zone, which is basically this, you know, this range near any border, 100 miles from any border, which which puts a huge percentage of the U.S. population in their sights. It sure does, um, yes. All the time because, you know, cities, surprise, surprise, cities pop up near port towns. Yeah, shocker. Um, yeah. Uh, so for those of us who are skeptical of that, to see that they have extended their reach to everywhere, <laughs> it, uh, that, that my, my, uh, my eyebrows are near the back of my head now. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, from their perspective, it's one of the things that we have to accept about modern life. I mean, the individual uh, representative from CBP who was interviewed here said, look, I can't protect myself from speed cameras. If I'm going on the road and there's a speed camera there, they're going to take a picture, uh, you know, if I go 40 miles an hour in a 25 mile an hour zone. And that's exactly what's happening here. Um, And the essence of that is something we've talked about. Uh, that as far as the legal system is concerned, if you put yourself in public, you know, whatever is collected about you really from from any source, um, whatever is collected about you uh, from a security camera, from a law enforcement officer with binoculars is fair game to be used in future uh, criminal proceedings. Mm-hmm. And the warning here is basically saying you don't have any way to protect yourself. Uh, If you're going somewhere to uh, commit a crime or to violate uh, the policies of the Department of Homeland Security or our immigration services, um, and you're, you know, doing that in a car, we're going to catch you because our system is that ubiquitous. And, you know, I hate to see these circumstances where the public is basically told there's nothing that can be done to protect their private information. Um, now, there are some mitigation efforts involved in this. They say that, um, you know, the only time they'll actually search these databases is if there's, quote, circumstantial evidence that some sort of criminal activity or illegal activity has occurred. Um, hmm. That's a pretty low bar to obtain that information. Uh, and they said that they only keep the data for five years. Uh, but when I think about where I was five years ago, it kind of seems like a long time to me. So, uh, so do they need a warrant? Absolutely not. Uh, hmm. No warrant is required because of this so-called plain view doctrine. Um, this was something that was observed, albeit something observed by uh, an artificial system, not by a human being, but it was observed in public. And when you expose yourself in public uh, and you don't uh, make any attempt to conceal your identity, then there is no violation of your expectation of privacy, of your reasonable expectation of privacy, and therefore there's no Fourth Amendment event. Hmm. Yeah, boy, it's it's interesting because I guess we we get into that whole thing of uh, driving a motor vehicle is a privilege, not a right. And uh, you know, if I'm walking around on the street, I may put on a hat and some sunglasses to try to 
to maintain my privacy, but if I cover up my license plate, that's going to draw even more attention to me yeah, out you're, on the road. <laughs> you're probably going to get pulled over. That's something <laughs> I do not recommend doing. All right. Well, again, the article is uh, written by Zach Whitaker over on TechCrunch. It's titled, CVP says it's unrealistic for Americans to avoid its license plate surveillance. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Thank you.